0: Hey, it's me, Danielle. Super glad you're here listening, but I want to let you know that we've made some huge improvements to our sound quality. So if you listen to our Cocaine Bear episodes and wish you could hear Fran a little better, you're in luck. By episode three, we've got it ironed out. Hey man, we're new here, but we're not afraid to learn. Thanks for listening. Now, back to the show. I'm Danielle.
1: I'm Fran.
0: And this is Snow in the Mountains. Good morning, Fran.
1: Good morning, Danielle. How are you? I'm great. I'm Good. so excited
0: to be back in the studio with you today. Yes, ma'am. Um, this will be our second episode. We spent last week talking about um, the very famous bear from your very infamous cocaine bear case. And today, we're going to wrap up that story by talking about the real perpetrator in that crime because the bear was innocent. Um This is Andrew C. Thornton, who we're going to discuss, and I'm pretty excited to get into the details about this guy.
1: Yes, in fact, there could be many episodes about uh, that were spinoffs of the Cocaine Bear as the investigation continued uh, once we got into that case. Um, Andrew Thornton was 40 years old when he passed away, September the 11th, 1985. Uh, he had been married and uh, lived, of course, in Kentucky. I uh, had been divorced and pretty much led a very—I um, want to say, for the lack of better words—James Bond-style life. He uh, was a rogue law enforcement officer and uh, turned into uh, smuggling tons. Literally, Literal tons. Literally tons of marijuana into the country. And this was probably his, what they called at that time, the company, as they referred to it, was from uh, uh, ent- entirely into the East Coast of the United States. But as they referred to his business, it was called the company. But he had ties to uh, mob figures. He had ties to uh, a judge getting killed in Texas that was he was shot in his driveway a federal judge and um, one of his pilots was actually uh, captured in South America on a drug run and held hostage until they paid so uh, there's many many uh, uh, intriguing and uh, very dangerous parts of his life that, he just thrived on. That's
0: crazy. It sounds like we have a lot to unpack with Thornton today. Um, before we get started, I wanted to ask. Um, I mean, because obviously, I love um, new true crime cases. I like to keep up with what's current. I also love vintage cases, which is where you come in, my friend. Um, and I was thinking on my way up here to meet you this morning about, you know, how it's so easy for. Anything really to become high profile in this new era of social media. And I was thinking about how wild it must be for you to have seen, you know, the shift and, you know, people obsessing over true crime or the fact that it's just so much more readily available in front of us every day. Do you keep up with a lot of these bigger cases that are happening currently or recently? I mean, think like, the Murdoch family, Gabby Petito, the um, Idaho College murders, um, there's so much that happens um, all the time. Do you keep up with that or do you feel like you have to keep yourself sort of sheltered from it?
1: No, in fact, I think I gravitate to it because I worked so many of those types of cases uh, as recently as yesterday when we unfortunately had to see another school shooting. and it's terrible. Very rare, only 5% of women are involved in school shootings. That and struck me as she, well. She had mental, mental problems. Yeah. And it's not the fact that, you know, there's, there's, you know, our second amendment rights are involved and, you know, the public is um, wants to maintain that for the most part, you know, the, the majority of the public uh, of the United States uh, believes in, you know, the right to bear arms and, you know, the problem is not just keeping our weapons and keeping our families safe and our country safe. It's, it's bigger than that. It's, you know, how was she allowed to buy seven weapons with a with a you know, mental problem, sure. you know, a mental health problem? Sure. So and that um, she had no other, she had no criminal record and things like that. So those are the kind of things that intrigued me as well as like the Murdoch case and some of the bigger cases. Um, I think one of the most interesting, and this is kind of like, you know, running down the the rabbit hole here again. I think one of the most um, interesting things about uh, today's investigation that should be pursued uh, more diligently, and it's being used a little bit, is the uh, reverse DNA.
0: Oh, yes. Genetic genealogy is amazing. That's how
1: Paul Holes
0: And his associates in Contra Costa County in California were able to finally track down the Golden State Killer. And um, actually, genetic genealogy is what played a role in one of the very first true crime cases that struck me in my heart as a kid. I became, as it's known on the podcast, My Favorite Murder, which is my favorite true crime podcast, a murderino. Um, I became a murderino as a child when my mom told me the story of one of her childhood friends, Bradley Bellino, who went missing in the little town of Boardman, Ohio, um, just outside of Youngstown, part of the steel belt, you know, between Pittsburgh and Cleveland. Um, he was kidnapped um, over, actually it was almost 51 years to the day because I believe it was at the beginning of April and last year was the 50th anniversary of his case, but um, found unfortunately um, several days later in a dumpster, sexually assaulted, murdered. Um, and it wasn't until this year that they announced that they had through genetic genealogy found the man who was responsible, who is deceased. So he will never be prosecuted in a, in a court of law for his crimes. Um, but genetic genealogy is incredible. And I'm so excited that you, you know, keep up with that because I think that's really the future of, You know bringing closure to families because we're not going to be able to prevent crime from happening i think we both know that there's there's no way to stop that but if we can help to bring justice and closure and peace to families if that's as close as we get then that's what we need to do
1: absolutely I i think that's a big role i think that uh law enforcement needs to be looking at that and as a future uh caveat to their investigations to pursue that in, in, um, you know, in the biological sense so Absolutely. that they can deter future, you know, Jeffrey Dahlemers and other serial killers that are out there because uh, it can be done.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to get into Thornton. Um, let's take a quick break and we will be right back with that story. So Andrew C. Thornton, um, interesting character. Honestly, I'm looking at his photo and he's a pretty good looking guy. Um, He just looks like your average man, but I think you and I both know that's not where this story is going to go. A lot of twists and turns here. And um, Thornton was born October 30th, 1944 in Bourbon County, Kentucky. Um, This and some other details I'm going to share with you coming from Wikipedia. Thank you so much, Wikipedia. Um, it seems like he lived a, a pretty normal life, graduated from Sony Military Academy in 1962, joined the ROTC, um, went to Fort Bragg and became a paratrooper, which you mentioned last episode, um, probably <laughs> gave him a bit of inspiration to put tools he already had under his belt into this uh, drug smuggling ring that he was working on. Um, he actually received a Purple Heart for his service in the 1965 U S invasion in the Dominican Republic and trained racehorses for his father. So, I mean, you know, this guy, a bit of a chameleon, it seems like he could kind of do anything and maybe that's what helped him sort of fit in with these different groups and come up with these tricky little ways to make his money by smuggling drugs. Um, tell me about his career, Fran, what do you know about his tenure in law enforcement?
1: Well, I believe he started, um, the police department, he got, I think, bored with working on his father's uh, stud farm in Kentucky, and um, he started in the early 70s on the narcotics squad in um, Lexington, Mm -hmm. Kentucky, and he decided to take night classes, uh, and he got a degree in criminal justice, and then um, later on, he decided to go back and he got a degree in law. So he was actually had a law degree. Um, he was in law enforcement for about eight years and the entire time uh, he was in law enforcement there, he was primarily in narcotics. Many of this, the stories that I've read about him, um, the documentation clearly, shows that not only was he, you know, busting mm-hmm. drug dealers and recovering drugs, he was using the same drugs to sell or or plant drugs on people that he needed to become informants for himself. Mm-hmm. So it was a very twisted, um, you know, law, if you want to call it law enforcement, it was really uh, what I would call Thornton's enforcement mm-hmm. of, uh, what he wished to do and how he wished to further his, um, bizarre, I wouldn't even call it law enforcement, bizarre, um, narcotics activity.
0: Yeah. It seems like he had a a pretty grand scheme in place. Do you have any evidence that some of the people that he busted, you know, did, did he end up working with any of them down the road?
1: Well, there was, um, I don't know that he claims that he did. He, he actually had a partner, uh, by the name of Bill Can. I think it's spelled C A N N, Bill Can or Bill Conn. Uh, and he and Bill actually met um, at the Lexington Narcotics Unit. And um, in their escapades there, they um, met with a young lady by the name of Melanie Flynn. And Melanie was a jet setter. She was in her 20s, uh, came from a very prestigious family, wealthy. Her father was a former state senator, and um, she had a well-endowed background. She... Um, Flew all over the country, she at one point attempted to be a model, she did some acting, she uh, really didn't have a what you would call full-time type job. Uh, She had been um, lucrative in some of the types of work that you might consider close to prostitution, where. She was doing filming and the types of filming were questionable. But um, for the most part, she was raised right and she uh, just got in with what I would call the wrong, wrong crowd being Thornton and Khan. And so um, she, Con, at that time was married and um, I believe she had probably been arrested for drugs. And they tried to uh, flip her and she became their informant, as so many officers do. Uh, They probably used a technique where they just basically threatened her and said, you know, you're going to jail. You're going to embarrass your family, blah, blah, blah.
0: Well, I mean, Thornton doesn't seem like a guy whose integrity is aplenty, we'll say. So, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, particularly being able to bully a woman into what you need from them. It seems a bit run of the mill for these like more crooked type of guys.
1: Exactly. She was um, very attractive, and so um, she, I guess, enjoyed the the wealth and the lifestyle and that type of thing that these guys would tell their stories of what they would be doing and partying and all that kind of stuff and guns and the violence and all the all the war, war stories that come along with that. So, um, she ends up disappearing and, uh, she had told her parents that Bill Kahn with the, uh, narcotics unit had, uh, basically proposed to her that he was going to marry her, even though he was already married. And, uh, Good job, so Bill. the parents had, um, uh, reported her missing and, um, the investigator did a terrible job basically did nothing uh, and for reasons that you can probably assume that um they didn't want to find her um they did find a purse of hers containing a prescription bottle in a lake uh near the property that thornton owned which was a key piece of evidence sure and um, then the investigator at the time that was investigating her death uh, got a tip that she was sighted in Miami. It wasn't unusual for her to travel to Miami. She wasn't the type of girl that would just run away or a woman at that time that would run away and not let her parents know where she was. She would call and check in. But... um. So the investigator traveled to to Miami and interviewed this person that allegedly saw her. Of course, he was also associated with Thornton and con so this makes it was sense. Pretty apparent that, you know, it was all set up. Yeah. So, um, how unfortunate it's, it's sad because the parents never got any type of investigation about the, the missing, uh, person mm-hmm. to, and, Probably the death of their daughter.
0: Likely just to protect the law enforcement officers who were part of potentially her murder.
1: Well, I think Melanie was too close. She knew exactly what they were doing and they probably feared she was going to tell. Yeah. And that would have brought the whole company down.
0: Well, I think maybe that's the risk you take when you, you know, consort with like-minded you know, folks who aren't afraid to commit a crime or two along the way. You just never know when someone's going to flip. And can you really trust a criminal? I guess is basically what
1: it comes down to. Only criminals trust other criminals. And most of the time they don't.
0: (laughs) That makes perfect sense.
1: There's a, there's an excellent, uh, journaling. I'll call it a book of the, it's called the bluegrass conspiracy written by Sally Denton. And um, I'm gonna read a short excerpt from that book. Awesome. That uh, talks about Melanie Flynn. In 1983, her mother breaks a 16 year silence about the disappearance, calling a radio talk show to accuse the Lexington police of ignoring significant information she provided to them in 1977. Mrs. Flynn was especially critical of then-Captain John Bizack for his role in the case. I have given Bizack and many of your police officers, she tells Lexington Police Chief Larry Walsh on the air, names, dates, addresses, and events that nobody seemed to care about. The mother also tells WKYT TV reported that she believes the Lexington police themselves were involved in her daughter's disappearance and murder.
0: What a strong woman. I mean, that is just heartbreaking as a mom, and you too. I mean, to have to issue a public plea, not for somebody to help you, but for somebody to even listen. She's giving information to a brick wall. Nobody is budging to help her. I just can't imagine, you know, compounding that level of grief and confusion with that anger and that frustration. I mean, it just sounds like a parent's worst nightmare.
1: It was. And it probably still is. I, it probably I haunts her, her to her this day. Her parents are still alive. Her her brother actually played for the uh, Cincinnati Reds. He was a famous baseball player. Oh, that's awesome. Melanie's brother. Sad well, case.
0: It, it's it's awful to hear. And, you know, this kind of echoes back what we had said last week, that drug smuggling is not a victimless crime. And usually there's a trail of destruction, you know, leading up to and during the transportation of Marijuana and cocaine and, you know, the distribution of narcotics. Um, how did Thornton get his start in smuggling?
1: Well, he was approached by um, a friend of his who he met in the military school. And his name was uh, Bryant. Bryant. And Bryant became his partner. Actually, Bryant really wanted to lead the company more so than than Thornton. They were always butting heads. Mm-hmm. So they actually um, he uh, they actually met, and um, in the early seventies, and created what we called the company mm-hmm. in Kentucky. And uh, Bryant, his role was to secure the cocaine or the marijuana in South America through his contact, through Chagra. And Chagra was uh, living in Las Vegas at the time. And Chagra was a major importer of marijuana. Um, High dollar, lived in a million dollar mansion back in the 70s. Um, Gambled a lot, had a lot of women he um he was the one that was responsible for kid, killing the uh, federal judge i told you about in texas right and he actually uh went to prison for that and Chagra, um he was he was um jimmy Chagra. uh he was in prison in um for murdering uh, judge wood But anyway, um, so that's how that's how Bryant's job in the company or his role in the company was to secure the contacts through Chagra in South America to get the marijuana.
0: So I'm sure the cocaine's coming from Colombia. Mm-hmm. Is the marijuana coming from Colombia as well?
1: Yes. Um, there was more marijuana to start because it was that was the period of time it was so drew's role was transportation and ground crew that was drew's role so it was almost like a military concept sure you know that's what he loved that was drew's role to develop in infiltrate and make it work.
0: He's the logistics guy, Yes, the make it happen guy. You know, as you were talking, I had to know, this is like one of my favorite parts about old cases is Mm -hmm. figuring out what it means today. So when you mentioned that Chagra had lived in this million dollar mansion, Mm -hmm. I had to look it up and see that a million dollars in 1970 is equivalent to about seven Point seven five million dollars today. So I mean, yeah, that guy was oh, yeah. loaded. He,
1: he was rolling. Yeah, he had lots of money.
0: Um, so they start the company. They formulate this plan. Everybody is assigned to their own, you know, list of chores, right. the housekeeping that they have to do in order to keep this operation afloat. Do you know how many runs um, or how many imports they had before? We find Thornton's body on September 11th, 1985.
1: I don't know exactly how many, I can't put a number on it. I know there were many. I know that several uh, large aircraft were went into Kentucky, into dirt strips in K- Kentucky. I do know that um, they used a lot of um, Beechcraft King Airs with um, um, double duplicate fuel engines or fuel tanks on it.
0: Oh, lot, so they could fly further.
1: Yes. A lot of times in the smaller planes, um, because marijuana was so bulky, it wasn't really popular to use small planes. That's why back in the eighties they used D C threes in the bigger planes. Sure. Because they could get more on the you know, on the plane and it, because of the bulk and the weight. But um and when when you put a bladder tank that holds the extra fuel for the distance, then you lose your uh, profit because because you're not bringing in
0: the drugs. Yeah, the plane can only hold so much weight. So are you bringing in the drugs or are you going to make sure you're fueled up for the journey?
1: That's right. And uh, so uh, many times, uh, I'm going to go back to one other thing. One, many times um, they would meet all over the country. And uh, one of the things I found interesting, there's a, a very popular still there today restaurant in Savannah called the 1790. Okay. And the 1790 restaurant, uh, I guess it's actually kind of a Airbnb now, um, was the meeting place for Brian and for Thornton back in the day. Oh. And they would have their meetings and they would, uh, put together their, uh, smuggling operation, their next venture. And, um, Many stories were overheard by the hired help and lots of drinking and lots of, um, you know, um, anger was going on because these two guys really were most, they were both type A personalities, I would say.
0: I think you have to be. I think you have to be. And so they they
1: often butted heads because they both wanted to be in charge. And uh, that's why it was difficult for them to you know, maintain this relationship that they
0: had. Well, and I mean, let's be honest, it's probably not a stress-free life oh, no. being a drug smuggler. And so I can imagine that, you know, tensions are running high. Um, like you said, we've got two like very alpha male personalities here. Um, who knows if, if they themselves were users, you yeah, know, you which know, could I've add fuel to the fire.
1: Any, I have never ran across anything that said that. And... I wonder that they did because a lot of time you I know mean, a lot of times you'll know that smugglers do that but a lot of times it's just business
0: sure, you know,
1: sure. it's just business because they want to be level headed and in clear thought when they're running this operation because it's well, know, it's very it's dangerous i think mi- you have to be able to think oh, on your millions, feet millions of dollars is at risk
0: well and i mean too you lose one guy I'm you like, know, or like
1: they did. Yeah.
0: Or one guy gets picked up and you don't want somebody to flip. Remember what you said earlier, that great quote that criminals, only criminals trust criminals if they even do. So um, so I see I'm looking back at the Wikipedia page and it sounds like um, the the plane that they were flying on September 11th, 1985, where we found Thornton in the driveway of poor Fred Myers. Um, was a Cessna 404. So this was one of the smaller planes. Um, and do you remember, um, I believe you had said it was about 75, um, was it pounds or kilos?
1: That was 75 pounds of cocaine was on his person in a green army duffel bag.
0: What was the valuation of that?
1: Uh, at the time I'm trying to remember back then, it was totally different than what it was today.
0: Um, back then, the valuation was $15 million. Here on Wikipedia, it also says uh, $4,500 in cash, um, six one-ounce gold Cougarands, knives, and two pistols. Oh, he was also wearing Gucci loafers. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> he's hot to trot. But um, the valuation today um, would be about $15 million in cocaine. Yeah. That is unbelievable well and remember too you had said that this was pure and uncut that's right so i mean by the time you cut this for distribution Uh, you
1: say if you cut it four times and four times
0: unbelievable i mean and this is not the only case of yours that we'll discuss on the podcast that (laughs) <laughs> I mean, like, these are humongous, tremendous amounts of drugs that you guys were,
1: really were don't working with. I think the public knows because back then, back in the seventies, there was not the communication. There was not the news. Right. There might have been a blip on, you know, the the local news about a plane crashing, but there was no information like there is today. There, right. was, there was no twitter there was no you know facebook there was no instagram about hey this is what's going on guys i mean it was it's instantaneous today
0: oh yeah everything well i mean watching the murdoch trial it's like i'm watching it on court tv or whatever but i'm seeing on twitter information that happened 30 seconds before because of the delay on my tv you know so Yeah. yeah i mean this this information is instantaneous and you guys as Agents of the GBI, the FBI, the DEA, local law enforcement agencies. I mean, not only are you out there protecting the public, but, you know, back in the day, it's like you're protecting everybody from the information, too. People just did not even realize that this was happening around them, especially in the South, um, because this was sort of the onset.
1: I do know that they did try to bring, they being the company, tried to bring a load of um marijuana into Statesboro, Georgia, and uh, Bryant had approached a farmer in Statesboro. At his pasture, he felt somehow he had a connection to this farmer through a source. Went to the farmer, said, look, I got a plane that needs to come in. Your place is great. Can you move the cows for a day? I'll be in and out. Offered him $50,000 to use the pasture. Wow. Okay. They were going to let it, ask him to let it dry out. You know, it was obviously in the summertime. And uh, the guy said, yeah, I think I can do that. (laughs) And so the next thing you know is uh, the, the farmer goes to the Bullock County Sheriff's office and, you know, reports this guy and his tag number. And it turns out to be Bryant.
0: Wow. Yeah. So, okay. You, Fran, are this, sweet little agent doing your thing out there in a man's world elbowing your way you know through this high profile law enforcement world and okay so Thornton's body is found you know your agents up in Tennessee because I know that was out of your jurisdiction gather up you know the remnants of what they can find around Thornton um I know that you had said that come October, the following month, you guys were able to retrieve another duffel bag and parachute out in I think Cherokee County, Georgia, correct me if I'm wrong, and then it's kind of like you know the parachutes match, the duffel bags match, you know this is all related but the guy is deceased. So it seems like case closed. 2 months later, you're preparing for Christmas and all of a sudden the bear is found. So tell me how you insert yourself here in the case. What happens next? How do you relate all of this together?
1: Well, at that point, um, because you have to remember our communications are as archaic (laughs) compared to what they are today. Yeah. So, um, We had already taken, uh, Agent Loggins and I had traveled to Cherokee County to pick up a parachute and a duffel bag with 75 pounds of cocaine that had landed in a gentleman's yard. Uh, This gentleman was an elderly gentleman, and he was very upset that we were taking his parachute. Oh! In fact, my boss, Gary Garner, had to go out and buy a duplicate parachute for this man. You're kidding me. No. <laughs> so that he would, uh, have, he would have a memoir uh, of yeah. what had landed in his yard. A
0: souvenir. Does this yeah. guy work for Kentucky for Kentucky? Or... No. Sorry, that was a
1: mean joke. No. I'm sorry. No, he doesn't. He just wanted <laughs> to have something to that. To hang on the wall to say this was his story.
0: I mean, the guy did realize that he could get a lot further if he kept all of the cocaine, right? (laughs) I mean, he'd be rich. That that wouldn't happen. Okay. All right. Well,
1: so So, that was very
0: nice of Gary. Yeah,
1: he he went and did that. I'm I'm sure he used (laughs) what we call peapot money. (laughs) Purchase evidence, purchase information money. That is so funny. That was the peapot money we bought with that. But uh, anyway... um, So we did. We traveled over to uh, Cherokee County and we got the duffel bag. uh, It had um, 34 packages of, uh, they looked like footballs, Mm -hmm. of cocaine. They were all labeled USA. Uh, It was a black nylon uh, parachute uh, and a Of course, it was a green army duffel bag. But I'm, I'm refreshing my memory from the official report of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation Division of Forensic Sciences.
0: Yeah, this report is mind blowing to me. I mean, first of all, the font. This is is this done in a typewriter?
1: This was probably done on a very, very old computer.
0: Oh yeah. Because look, it has the little black um yeah, box at the, the end. little box at the end. I'm <laughs> totally gonna put a photo of what this report looks like up on social media for you guys to see because it's just fascinating to me. First of all, that this document still exists. And then second, to see how things are detailed. Um, I mean, yeah, it's a far cry from where we're at today. But look, I mean, it's honestly a bit more impressive. I think that you guys are able to accomplish so much with so little technology. It's awesome. So, um, all right, continue. I can't wait to hear more about this document.
1: So um, once um, I had got the document and further looked further into what other agents had brought into the crime lab, Mm -hmm. because we did not have the resources to get on the computer and Google information like we do today right to determine that another agent had found another pair uh parachute in right they don't just this doesn't cross-reference itself so uh and in fact that had actually happened so the so the crime lab report shows different agents had come into atlanta and brought different parachutes containing duffel bags of cocaine they didn't know that we had done the same thing right so that's where you know, until we had met up with each other after the cocaine bear. Yeah. So uh, total amount of cocaine in Georgia, I think, like I said before in episode one, was 222 pounds of cocaine from the three different parachutes that were found. All Georgia, related to Thornton. Or all related to Thornton. And um, they were all pretty much identical. So we knew that it was was from, from the same right. shipment from that same night, September 11th. And we believe, like I said before, that it was, he was being chased by U.S. Customs from the coast coming in. And um, he chose, like we said, why would you kick out, you know, millions of dollars worth of cocaine unless you're going to get caught? He didn't want to get caught. Right. So he kicked it out and he thought he was the best of the best as a paratrooper. And, you know, that was the end of his story.
0: Yeah, that didn't work out so well for him.
1: But the other interesting part about this uh, crime lab report is it lists suspects on here, and there are several suspects, including Andrew Thornton, um, that I recognize, uh, one of which is, which is inter- very interesting. Uh, a gentleman, I'll call him loosely a gentleman, <laughs> because he, he tried to kill me. <laughs> I guess I can say he's not a gentleman.
0: I mean, do you mean that literally?
1: No, I really do mean that. He he had a hit on me. He put out a contract to kill me. Unbelievable. No, it's very believable.
0: I mean, I don't I don't yeah, want to believe curing, it, but I that's curing, why we're here. I was carrying several guns that time.
1: Anyway, his name is uh, Charles Cleon Anderson, and he was known as Buster Anderson, and he was from Dawsonville. Now Dawsonville was a pretty hotbed of. Uh, Drug activity back in the day. I
0: know we actually have some stories coming up. Oh, we do from Dawsonville. Many stories of
1: Dawsonville, and uh, Buster Anderson was um, good friends with former sheriff uh, John Davis, um, who was sent to jail for initially in his early life for uh, moonshine, and in which he met up with another man as his suite mate in federal prison and they also those two conspired to um, form a um, camaraderie to import marijuana into uh, lincolnton georgia so you know the the old saying is you don't shit in your own backyard yeah well the sheriff wouldn't really do stuff in his own backyard in dawson county He preferred to go to other places. So he and another sheriff in Elberton, Georgia, the Elbert County Sheriff, Charles Starrett, uh, were the ground crew security for DC-3s that were coming into a dirt strip along the Broad River in Elberton, Georgia.
0: And those planes were full of bunnies. No, they were full of (laughs) bunnies. (laughs) marijuana (laughs) marijuana yeah i think uh you know knowing you and the nature of your work fran i really didn't think it'd be sweet little bunnies um unbelievable so this guy buster puts a hit out on you is that related to this case we're going to discuss another day about the dawson county stuff Yes, it is. and how is he related to thornton i mean did it shock you to see his name on this report
1: not really but I don't know exactly who uh, put... See, when the agents go in with drugs, Mm -hmm. they put people's names down as suspects. So my only thinking is that one of the agents from one of these other cases put uh, Charles Cleon Anderson down as a suspect in uh, one of these um, seizures of drugs. Unbelievable.
0: Unbelievable.
1: Pretty interesting,
0: so Thornton jumps out of the Cessna, which crashes about what sixty miles or so away from where his body is found?
1: yeah, it crashes into North Carolina,
0: so the plane crashes in North Carolina. Thornton is found in Knoxville, Tennessee, correct, and the product is found all over Georgia, basically, yes, um. We know there was something on the plane that was not ever found,
1: and that was another human being. That's true. It's not much said about that. Um, I can't say his name. Uh, he may still be alive, um, but he also jumped and uh, is survived. Survived, and uh, I think that uh, he was interviewed or attempted to be interviewed by several people. And uh, refuses to give any kind of statement. He was never arrested, uh, never charged. And uh, that's kind of a interesting quirk of this whole thing, that um, he could walk away from all that.
0: I mean, he seems to me like he flew away from it. I mean, how do you live to tell that tale and fly so far under the radar for the rest of your life and hey listen this is america you are innocent until you are proven guilty that's true but i think you know in a court of law it would be very difficult to not walk away with some pretty substantial uh charges right i mean yeah, you are on we,
1: the plane and we don't know where what the investigators did in north carolina how much of the plane was recovered i don't know those answers i don't know uh if they were able to get fingerprints back then, if they even did that, if it was, if it burned up, you know, I don't know those things and things like that, if they were done, you know, why wasn't he pursued? Why did he, you know, get off scot-free so to speak?
0: Well, and you know, it is very interesting, you know, having to be involved in a case that involves so many jurisdictions I mean, again, we're talking three different states with three different bureaus of investigation, um, drug enforcement agency, local law enforcement agencies. um, And as you described, like an etched in stone sort of tablet, archaic way of documenting these cases. It is fascinating to me how it could even all come together. In, sure. in any way to form some sort of like due process for a criminal. Now, of course, as we said, Thornton um, Thornton was never able to be prosecuted, and probably got what was coming to him. Um, what would have happened if Thornton was found alive? Would the jurisdiction that found him be the one to take over? Would he be, you know, sent yes. back to North Carolina?
1: Let's, let's say he. Let's say he. Um parachuted. He injured himself. He couldn't walk. Mr. Myers called him in and they caught him. Let's we'll say that that happened. Um, probably what would have happened. This is, this is my interpretation sure. of what I would have think would have happened. DEA would have stepped in mm-hmm. the Drug Enforcement Administration and, uh, taken over, taken him over. They would have taken him away from the locals or, and even the state or tried to work with the state on this and uh, tried to uh, flip him he would have had to give up everybody because he was going to jail for a a very long time and by doing that he would have had to give up a lot including Melanie Flynn um
0: so taking down the whole company would have been the goal and by taking down the company then you can access the guys that have the contacts in Colombia and all of that
1: that's right Um, what is there? He would have gotten a little bit of jail time, but nothing like, nothing like the information, the information he had and the contacts that he had would have far outweighed any jail time that he could have served.
0: So I have a question about the bear. The bear has many nicknames, my favorite of which (laughs) is Pablo Escobar. I mean, honestly, it's kind of adorable and it's very catchy. Um, I mean, we know that the cocaine came from Colombia. Do you know if this came from Pablo Escobar's organization or?
1: No, it came from contacts that Chakra had. And it came from the Santa Marta, Columbia area. So um, that's the best I know about that. That's um, the best of my recollection.
0: Interesting. Well, we'll be right back after this quick break. I'm just sort of left baffled, you know, thinking about this guy and how you know, I just imagine him as like a really puffy chest kind of kind of guy who just thinks the world of himself and I I wonder, Fran, you know, I mean, it's been how many years since this case unfolded? It's been how many years since you've really heard these names? Um, I can't imagine how difficult it can be to sort of move on from these cases. And, you know, I wonder how often you think of these people and the things that they did and and your role in trying to clean up the mess that they left behind. So what is it about Andrew C. Thornton that still sort of haunts you to this day, if anything?
1: Well, Danielle, I was 31 when I worked this case. (laughs) I am 69 years old. I still remember so many of the details about it. it still uh, intrigues me. And um, I don't know how else to describe him other than to say, after I did my investigation and I've read so much more about him through other sources, I would describe him as a cavalier blue blood with a mediocre scholastic aptitude, enough law enforcement skills. To learn his cocaine importation trade, he was pretty much braggadocious about his parachuting skills, which caused his demise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
0: it's a great summary of the way that you had to perceive this guy. And, you know, you kind of wonder how much further he thought he could take it Mm -hmm. or if he was kind of living every day like it was his last.
1: And he did. Because he had that mentality. He told many of his friends that he thought he lived in the wrong century, that he often likened himself to a Genghis Khan or a samurai <laughs> or a, you know, a ninja, a warrior. He, he, he likened himself to a warrior. I'm sure he did. So uh, he, he obviously focused his skills in the, in the wrong trade. It was interesting that um, I, I'm going to share a poem that Thornton had in his wallet when law enforcement found him on the ground in Tennessee. No way. Yes. And we'll put it on our. Oh, we can put it on our social. Yeah. Oh, awesome. It says, believe nothing because a wise man said it because it is generally held because it is written because It is said to be divine because someone else believes it, but believe only what you yourself judge to be true.
0: Wow. I mean, this is a guy who feels that even when you're doing wrong, you're not doing wrong as long as you feel that it's benefiting you. Right. It's true. Interesting. Well, Fran, I'm so excited that you finally told me the real story of the cocaine bear and how this all happened. And it feels great to me to be able to sort of put to bed some of the myth. I mean, I get that there's it's a bit of fun to sort of make a spectacle of it. But like I said in our last episode, it's a wild enough story for me, just the way that it was.
1: I'm going to say also that uh, put a plug in for um, the Peacock Channel is going to put an episode, a documentary about Andrew Thornton, on April the 14th. So tune in to the Peacock Channel for uh, the documentary on Andrew C. Thornton.
0: That is so awesome. We're going to make sure in the show notes that we include um, links to any of the articles that we used. We had one from uh, Wikipedia. We had um, Sally Denton's book, The Bluegrass Conspiracy. And we'll make sure that we get some additional photos up on social for you so you can see what this amazing vintage report looked like that Fran was looking at. Uh, We appreciate you listening so much. We will be back next week with a brand new episode about... Somebody else who was doing something wrong. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. And please behave. Snow in the Mountains is recorded in North Georgia by Fran Bishop and co-host and producer Danielle Eichelhart. Follow us on social media at snowinthemountains.pod or email us at podcast at gmail.com. Please be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and follow to help us out. And be sure to listen in every Wednesday for a brand new episode.